This is Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm your host, David Wilk. Today I'm talking to Cornelia Maud Spellman. She's the author of a book called Missing, um, a memoir. And how are you, Cornelia? It's really nice to have you here. Yeah, I'm good. It's so nice to be with you, David. Thank you. It's a very interesting book, um, which I think a lot of people may relate to in you know, in their own ways, uh, not necessarily, they don't need to necessarily share your experiences, but uh, it's a memoir of kind of excavation of uh, your family history and yeah. specific people in particular, very emotional and very um, kind of meditative book. Maybe you could talk a little bit about why, what prompted you, what specific things got you to write about your family? I like, David, that you use the word excavate, because that is often how I felt, like I was on an archaeological dig, but the artifacts were my own people in, in the past. And many things got me to write, but mostly, I think, a desire to understand what happened to my mother because she began, and the cover of the book shows the photograph of her as a, a lovely, healthy, courageous, I feel, young person, as most young people are, facing life with a lot of optimism and a lot of expectations. What happened to her that she turned into the woman I knew who smoked herself to death? She really was an addict. People didn't recognize so much then, and they still, I think, don't recognize how powerful nicotine addiction is. Uh, but she smoked herself to death at 63, and she'd been very ill for 10 years before that from smoking. So I saw her as a when she was ill and when she was depressed, very thin. She could hardly walk uh, for any length. She was on oxygen. And when I found the beautiful pictures, because some of them I had not seen before, that cover photo of Mother is her senior high school picture, and I found that in the Mason City Public Library in a yearbook, and I was just thrilled, and I saw that she had been a basketball star and a runner. She'd been athletic, and um, what happened? I wanted to explore what happened in this woman's life that she ended up not only dying so young, but having a life where loving a man who ultimately betrayed her and having a son who disappeared and who she at one point accused of trying to kill her. We thought she was paranoid and she may have been paranoid. I'll never know the answer to that. But he was certainly a, a, a troubled person my oldest brother who disappeared. Yeah, we'll talk about Frank yeah. at some, you know, I wanted to, you know, kind of, I have to, I should have gone back to the very beginning when you introduce, in a way, indirectly, you introduce your parents by talking to Bill Maxwell, William Maxwell, the writer for The New Yorker, who I think a lot of people will know of, although as time goes on, writers as that older I- older people. Yeah, yeah writers older I think- people know of. Well, I- Writers I think of that everyone must know, only fewer and fewer people know. Yes. Um, and, uh, but Maxwell was a terrific writer. And of course, it turns out that he was a very close friend 
with your parents uh, when, when they, they were, were young. In, when they were young at the University mm -hmm. of Illinois. So you open in a by um, visiting him and meeting your parents as young people through his memory, which was interrupted. It's sort of an interesting um, uh, counterpoint that your memory of her is, and of course you were the young youngest child uh, and she had had other children for you know yes. many years before Five you. Children. But your knowing her was only at the later part of her life his yes. knowing with her was only at the beginning of her yes. life, so that there's this kind of counterpoint between the two um, vis uh, uh, perspectives of who your mother and father were. Yes, and the counterpoint, um, David, also was that Bill had lost a parent when he was a child. His mother died when he was 10. And as you know from reading So Long, See You Tomorrow, his book, um, it was the the pivotal experience of his life. And he felt, he wrote, that he was unable to love anybody else for a long, long time because of the impact of his mother's death. She had died of the Spanish influenza right. in 1918. And it was the same year that my mother's father, Sam, had died, not of influenza, but of a ruptured appendix. And I... Bill did not remember ever talking with mother about the death of her father. They probably talked about the death of his mother because, to my complete surprise, Bill had tried to commit suicide after his mother's, uh, it wasn't really after his mother's death because he was 10, but when he knew my parents at the University of Illinois, he had very seriously tried to commit suicide. and But my parents had never told me that either. So there were a lot of important emotional themes, strong emotional themes going both ways that neither one had ever talked to me about. But by the time I met Bill, I could talk to him about anything. Well, I, I'm sure you experienced this, but I think many other people do as well, that the parents, our parents, didn't talk about emotional things with us as children. They would just never have thought of doing that. But I also think that you know, we you know we understand that communication and the the awareness of psychological self didn't exist before a certain period of time for most people. You know, the idea of it's not just Freud, but it is the it is a kind of modern uh, trope that we have this awareness of psychological self. It's not that it didn't exist before, but it certainly wasn't uh, as pointed. Uh, in the 19th century, in the 18th century, they had emotions, they had um, uh, psychological disturbances, but they didn't talk about them in the way that we do. They didn't have the language for it, but they also kind of, it was just not talked about. It was Completely. referred to, you know, it was all peripheral, either peripheral or indirect. So it's, it's completely true. And Bill Maxwell writes about his mother lying in the coffin. He's 10 years old. His mother's lying in the coffin in their dining room, in their house. And he and his father, with their arms around each other, are walking round and round and round the downstairs. He, he never talked to his father about all of that. And he really didn't talk to anybody until he was in therapy with uh, a therapist in New York City uh, who asked him, to tell him about it, and Bill started to tell him, and then came the tears that he had never really shed. 
And I believe that had my mother been able to shed the number of tears that she needed to shed, I don't think she would have smoked herself to death. I'm very serious about addiction being a replacement, a bad replacement for human connection and not just for the sharing of feeling, but for the comfort and succor of human connection. Yeah, I know. I've thought about, I was, I smoked when I was young and I know that it was highly addictive. I always felt that that was that oral um, gratification that must, you know, might have something to do with not being loved on some level, not being able to absorb, uh, you know, there are all kinds of ways of interpreting that. Aside from the fact that nicotine is highly addictive, so it doesn't really matter why you smoke because right. once you start smoking, you are truly addicted. It's much worse than um, almost anything else. I understand. I too was a smoker. <laughs> and your mother, I think, did what many, you read, you know, these terrible stories of people having emphysema and smoking even while they're on oxygen, you know, even in their deathbed, they cannot That's what stop. she did. Yeah. yeah. Which is terrible to imagine. She, she did. It was, it was horrifying. And I wish that my father or somebody would take charge and put her in a hospital and, you know, stop her, help her to stop. Well, but my father was very flawed, and he he, he said he was going to smoke. He was going to stop smoking one of these days when the weather got better. <laughs> well, <laughs> was, and you do write about your father. Obviously, he was had his difficulties um, and was not able. I mean, you know, you the idea of success doesn't necessarily have to be defined by material success, but he did not seem to be able to accomplish the things he wanted to accomplish. Um, yeah. And that he also probably didn't have a way of expressing how he felt about that. So he was a thwarted person who was probably, sounds like he was pretty unhappy. Um, you, you know, I don't, I don't know if he knew he was unhappy. I don't think he was so unhappy. Uh, I think that he was not very energetic about getting the things he wanted. And he was a, a large and handsome and charming man. And life is pretty easy when you're large, charming, and handsome. Mm. And he had many good qualities. But I do think probably he may have had a learning disability. He stammered badly. And in those days, they also didn't know about um, learning disabilities. And that may have been part of what held him back, although he was a a tremendous reader. He loved reading. So if he had some learning disability, it didn't get in his way. I mean, our, our houses were overflowing with books all the time, which I love. Although you did mention, I, I, I noticed that you found his um, school, rec his university records, <laughs> and he had gotten Ds, you know. And <laughs> so maybe the learning disability idea applies, that he was yeah, really it, it, smart, but not able to deal with, I mean, because you know, we know there are a lot of people who have those prop issues. I won't even call them problems, but just differences in the way that people absorb information. And um, college doesn't work for everyone. No. And uh, and also he, uh, well, anyway. <laughs> so, but, but to continue with the theme of, and I don't want to give away the book, it's sort of, you know, part of the, the 
pleasure in reading a memoir is that you don't know what the author is going to uncover, especially if we kind of compare this to archaeology. Um, it's sort of, you know, it's always surprising what you find at different levels, you know, as you go down this level is one like you know one city and then below it is another city and then below that yes. might be even another city so and speaking of cities um you go back to later in the book but so i'm skipping ahead but you go back to mason city which you mentioned earlier in iowa um where your family had settled uh many many you know many generations earlier and your turns out that your grandfather the the sam schneider person who married your grandmother, whose name I think was also Cornelia. It was Corny. It or was corny. just Corny well, for some okay. reason. They didn't. So it wasn't shortened from Cornelia. No, no. Interesting. So, uh, but Sam was her husband and he was a successful banker and a really, sounds like a really popular, wonderful guy that um, everyone in Iowa, in, in uh, Mason city adored. Yes. And then he died in this unexpected, terrible way on a business trip to Chicago. Died unexpectedly and shockingly because he and, and of course, my mother ne had never told me any of this. The only thing I knew about her father's death was that he died of a ruptured appendix. Perhaps the only reason I even knew that was because I also had a ruptured appendix. No, not ruptured, almost ruptured when I was seven and had to have emergency appendectomy. So that really stuck in my mind. But he and my grandmother, I later learned in writing the book by looking at newspaper archives, had been on a train to Chicago taking a vacation. And he was in severe pain and was rushed off the train in Chicago. And they operated <laughs> in those days. This was 1918. They had no antibiotics. And he survived the operation, lived for five days, and they thought he was going to recover, but he didn't. Instead, he died. And what I wondered so much when I was working on the book and finding out was where was mother? Because she was only seven, and mm. she was an only child. Who was who was with mother when she heard the news? And she had an Aunt Maud, that's my middle name, uh, and Aunt Maud apparently you know, was taking care of her at her grandparents' house in Charles City, Iowa. But... I wanted to say in terms of the strange coincidences or synchronicities of this story, I had uh, this ruptured appendix, this almost ruptured appendix when I was seven. My grandfather died of it. And in, at the end of May this year, I had emergency surgery for uh, a bowel obstruction and I was in terrible pain. And what I thought of was my grandfather, Sam, again, because I realized that the pain that he must have had and that I had were similar. And it, it made me feel even more connected to him. I'd always felt connected to him, I think, because I knew that my mother loved him very much. And because she once said to me, only once, oh, he would have loved you so. Mm, yeah. And I really remembered that. Yeah, well, I, I th when you're when you're speaking of a uh, you know a a relative who's not present, either whom you never knew or whom you knew very when you were really young, I think that there's that make there's always, I think that makes a big impact that that can be a lifelong, um, not necessarily memory, but 
connection uh, to the person not known. One makes a kind of hero. In my case, I think mm. I made a kind of hero of Sam because he, I sensed he was certainly the parent that had loved mother. Her mother, Corny, was very cold, very judgmental. My mother said of her, she liked things better than people. Right. But of course, you don't know. This is one of those mysteries of right. life. What would her mother's life have been like had her husband not died when she exactly. was, a, you know, a mother of a and became a single young. mother? Yeah, young. And and yeah. you know, for and again for your mother, what would her life have been with if she if her father hadn't died? Um, you know, yes. it's those um unknowable things and it sort of relates back to your father what would have his life have been like if it you know all of those ifs you all know, those and are, ifs and and when you think about the way we go through life there are things that happen to us or happen to someone that have a huge impact on them and change the course of their lives not predictably um and you know I, we think about you know I mean, it's easier to think about it historically, but it happens to all of us. Um, you know, you look back at something that we're old enough to know that if, you know, a decision made or an event that happened in the, when you were in your 30s or 40s, literally changed the course of your life and probably altered the course of, of your children's lives if, if you yes. have them. And That's in the ways unknowable. Point. Yeah. The turning so, points that we, we face. Yeah. yeah. Some of them we have a choice about, and some of them we don't. Exactly. Well, we always have a choice about how we respond, but we don't always have a choice True. about what happens. And it's sometimes what happens is greater than our ability to respond. I mean, that's you know, it's yeah, it's why you it's you can't really judge how people in the past, your life, you know, your own family, or you know, other people in history. It's very difficult to judge them and say, oh, if I had been around, I wouldn't have done that. You know, or if it had happened to me, I would have responded better. You know, you don't know that. Well, it may not be nice to judge them, but I think you can judge them to a certain extent, because even though circumstances were different, I mean, a person, a person who's very cold, I think at some point has to accept responsibility for their coldness, and they have to accept responsibility for not learning how to be loving. I mean, if you're abused, it's true. If you're terribly abused and nobody ever loved you, maybe you don't have much of a choice. But in my grandmother's case, she was very petted and liked, and there wasn't any real reason for her to be so judgmental about my mother. I mean, she was harsh, uh, and I don't really forgive her for that. I do judge her, and I think I have the right to judge her. Well, you do because it affected you, too, in that way, you know? Yeah, certainly, but I saw what it did to my mother. Right. Well, but that's what I mean. It, it, what your mother became was, it had to be connected to what her mother was, or who yes, her mother and, was. Yes, and what I became was connected to what my mother right. was. But I had a lot of opportunities for change, changing myself that my mother didn't have, and, and that I guess my grandmother didn't have. And where you became a, a social worker, yes, yes. Although that that wasn't the opportunity I was thinking about. Okay. I was thinking more about 
being a social worker, I certainly was able to, by the way, that's a protected term in Illinois. I cannot use that term anymore mm. because you have to be licensed as a master's in social work therapist. I helped a lot of people, I hope, uh, but I learned an awful lot. And I don't think I could have written Missing, my memoir, if I had not had that professional training. You know, I thought about that when I was reading the book, that um, my wife was a social worker, LSCW or whatever. Am I mm -hmm. saying it right? Uh, LCSW. Or LCSW. Oh, yeah. and, um, and, and I, I think that it gives you, you know, being in therapy or, and being trained to do therapy gives you uh, a language and a tool set that makes it, it doesn't guarantee that you'll be a better person, but it certainly makes it easier to have a, an understanding of and an empathy for others, even in your own life. Oh, definitely. And mostly the understanding of the dynamics and the developmental stages of life, things that other people in my family, uh, I'm not saying they didn't understand any of it, because of course everybody, any smart person can figure out a lot, but I think it gave me an, an extra wide view. So can we talk a little bit about Frank, who is this very interesting character in your, in your family? He's your oldest brother. Um, he oldest. was much older. He was 11 years older than I. He was the oldest and I was the youngest. He had a really interesting habit of disappearing. <laughs> Pretty interesting. <laughs> right. And when did he first kind of disappear? He first disappeared when he was about 22. Right. He, he, he walked out on his wife and baby. And he said he was going to work and he just never came back. And my father found him. Um, but then he disappeared again. And this kind of went on for a number of years through various wives. And he finally reappeared with his, with another wife who we met and who was a nice person. They all were nice people, apparently. He stole money from them, and and he 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 basically didn't seem to have a conscience. The only thing my mother ever said about him, because again we didn't talk, she didn't talk about her feelings, and by all this time I was away from home in college and in my own life. The only thing she said about him, and she may have been absolutely correct, was that after he had encephalitis as a child, mm. he was never the same. Right. And I looked. I did a lot of research on the brain as I was writing the book too. And you, I, cause I sort of joke, well, can you, you know, can you lose your conscience? Well, yes, you actually can. <laughs> you can. So was that it? Or was it that my father was harsh with him? My father was harsh, but a lot of people were harsh in those days. My husband's father was harsh and yet he, you know, is a wonderful person. So it's another one of the questions that one could turn over for a long right. time. However, this brother caused a lot of suffering for a lot of people. Yeah, well, it sounds, I mean, it, you know, on one level, it's just an amazing uh, ability to do, you know, someone who could just disappear like that. I mean, the idea of, it's just amazing. And I said to him, David, the only time I talked to him about him, once when he was back and, and I said, how could you do that? He said, it's easy. You <laughs> right. just walk away. I know. 
but that's just it's so it's so alien to our you know we just don't know how to even understand it it's like another language or another culture where you have no frame of reference we've had many many examples in our wider culture of a person who can say you just do it oh yeah well and actually if you've ever been victimized by a con man as i have been once in a business experience um, a pretty serious one i will say for sure that's a sociopath you know that's a person who is yes. not capable of empathy and not caring about anybody um, and able to really do harm without any form of conscience whatsoever yes. no awareness yeah. Um, I know it exists. I mean, we know it, it, it exists. And this man was probably very charming, as as my my brother was. Unbelievably charming. Very, that's, very sweet. Very that's nice. How they very do it. But that's how they do it. You know, it's, I know. And there are, you know, I, you've seen movies about characters like that. We've read books about them. They're kind of fascinating and also horrible. But they're and they the effect that they have on people is massive. Um, they don't care. They have no recollection or no understanding of what they've done. Um, so you have that person in your in your life as someone that you had to deal with. Um, very well, I didn't. I didn't have to deal with him much, luckily. Uh, but you know, my father ended up inviting him to live in the house with mother when she was so sick. And it was after that, after he was living in the house with her, that she accused him of trying to kill her. Actually, she said he was trying to kill both of them. And at the time, I was living some distance away, and my father told me this, and I, I was alarmed by it, but I didn't think it could possibly be true because my father didn't seem to give any credence to it, and my mother was so sick and was on medicines and you know on oxygen all the time that I thought it was just something she imagined. But <laughs> 25 years later, I sat up in bed one night with the hair standing up on my arms, and I went, oh, my goodness, maybe he really did try to kill her. What if it's true? And, what if but, it's and true? that was one of the most powerful parts of the book, I think, was you're going back and talking to her doctor and talking to the nurse and talking to yeah. people who were around her then, which was amazing that you were able to find them and that it they was. were still around. And um, I think lucky. you're very lucky that you it had that lucky. experience. Yeah. yeah. So, like, a, you get to kind of live in that in their recollections of that time. Yes. But of course, you'll never be able to know all of the things that you were wanting to know. No. But you but, can you can find out a lot, and, and the lot that you find out is satisfying. But I wasn't sure that I wanted to find my brother, because after she died, he went missing again. He, he hung around long enough to get an inheritance that he knew was coming. And he married did, another... He married another woman and left her a note saying, I'm not going to be home tonight or ever. Ever. <laughs> I and know, he's kind of He's kind of poetic, though. You have to give him a little credit for these uh, uh, <laughs> statements of departure. They're incredibly pithy and clear. You know, like, no messing around. I'm leaving. Goodbye. And But you did look for him. Um, you know, it, later in, in the story, you did look for... Um, 
evidence of his still being around or not. And I thought, you know, you did get some closure um, from finding out what had become of him. Oh, I did. Yeah. So I did. Well, it, you know, it's a fairly short book, but it has lots of um, lots of layers and a lot that obviously a lot that we we're able to talk about. So I think a good sign for readers that they will be able to um, uh, find um, parts of your story um, uh, kind of either, uh, you know, you can either read it as and just appreciate the storytelling because you write it really well. But it also, I Thank think you. you can read it and think about your own family and your own experiences. You know, the it, it's an empathetic book and it invites empathy in the reader. And um, I think that that makes it um, strong. So um, Good. I, I, I enjoyed it and it, it has stayed with me. Uh, and I love, Good. by the way, I really like the photographs that you were able to find. You know, they, uh, of all these people there, um, it's, you know, it, it's, remarkable that you were able to find so many pictures so yeah we have a lot of rather beautiful photographs that now live in the schlesinger library it's a good book well i really want to thank you for doing this i enjoyed reading the book very much and i enjoyed talking to you just now so thank you thank you so much david i appreciate all your questions and your thoughtfulness oh thanks this has been Writer's Cast, a podcast about books and authors. I'm David Wilk. I've been talking to Cornelia Maud Spellman about Missing, a memoir. Thank you again. Mm -hmm.